I think it must have been subconsciously, I think I started to think about my illness almost like I would have these trimesters to the experience. So I'm gonna have one year of just, I'm gonna let them get as aggressive as they want with trying out whatever treatments they wanna try. So I'm gonna hand myself over. That's Jennifer Dunn. Hi, Jen. Hi, how are you? She used to work in radio, and she traveled the world. She got married, had a daughter, became a teacher. And now she has advanced colon cancer. Soon after Jen's diagnosis, she was told that she has about three years left to live. Jen is in year two of that prognosis. This was the year that was supposed to be all about Jen's bucket list. She wanted to go to Hawaii with her daughter and snorkel with dolphins, spend time with her husband's family in Colombia. She and her husband wanted to take their daughter to the island of Hainan in China to show her where they first met and fell in love. And then there were even the simple things, like take some obscure dance class, try new restaurants. But then came the coronavirus, and all these plans came to a screeching halt. We'll hear more about her experiences being terminally ill during a pandemic a little later, but I first want to back up a bit. Because to Jen, it's important that people know that it took years for her to even get a diagnosis. You know, if I can better understand where the collapses were leading up to my diagnosis, hopefully somebody can apply that to some future (laughs) case and, you know, avoid another mistake. While there may be several reasons why it took so long, a big one is likely because of her younger age. She was under 40 when she started experiencing symptoms. Most people who are diagnosed with colon cancer are older. But for some reason that doctors are still trying to figure out, colon cancer has been on the rise in younger people. Before our interview, Jen wrote this in an email to me. I've had a bit of a rough few days, but probably not that dissimilar from the rest of the world. Apart from adjusting to my new chemo regimen, I'm just feeling frustrated and down by the limitations that the pandemic And now the fires are adding to an already semi-limited life. But it would be silly and unrealistic to think that I'll be feeling fantastic any week. Mortality is messy like that. Maybe we can approach this in a couple different sessions. So that's what we did. Two different sessions on two different days. So I just wanted to start off and ask you a bit about your diagnosis. Could you just tell me a little bit about the history of that and when you were diagnosed? I am currently 41 years old. I started experiencing uh, really troubling symptoms when I was about 38, I would say. Um, I was I was having symptoms for a while, just like uh, really feeling really bloated all the time. 
Unfortunately, despite talking with my primary physician about these symptoms over a period of time, in addition to going to the emergency room at least three times when the pain was just so unbearable that I was doubled over and couldn't do anything, and urgent care, and Planned Parenthood, and basically just taking these confusing collection of symptoms to every healthcare provider I, I could, I could find up in that fairly rural region where we were living in Northern California, uh, nobody ever screened for colon cancer. Jen's doctor thought that her symptoms were related to stress. And then, it, and at some point, I think she made me question myself, like, well, I, you know, am I just, I don't know, I am really stressed at work. Well, I was really stressed at work because I was crying. Every but morning. Jen knew that something was very wrong with her body. And something that I want to be loud and clear for anybody listening is that I, I didn't really put my foot down. You know, I knew something was really, really wrong with me. It, it's not normal to, to cry every day before you leave the house because you're in so much pain. So the times that, that she sort of diverted my attention to thinking about other sources for this pain, because I was already not my most confident point in my life, I allowed her to dismiss me too easily. Mm-hmm. So the last time I was in the ER, I just, I refused to leave until I said, I, I, yes, I hear what you're telling me. I know you can see all this like stool in my body. I get that. But I really believe it's because I'm obstructed and please, I'm, I'm not leaving until you look inside my body and you can tell me otherwise. And they did a CT scan and the doctor brought the <laughs> This sheet of paper in with some very scary words on it just said we've see some irregularities and lesion. I think the word lesion was used like on your liver. I was stunned. I asked him, what does this mean? He literally dropped it like it was a hot potato, the paper in my lap and just put his hands up and said, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. He refused to make eye contact with me and said, talk to your primary, talk to your primary. I don't know what this means. Like he couldn't get out of the room fast. <laughs> oh, geez. So, so there yeah. Jen was in a hospital room with a piece of paper with really scary words on it with a doctor who didn't know what to say. And so after her CT scan, Jen had a biopsy. And then her primary physician, the same one who originally thought that Jen's symptoms were due to stress, called her with the results. So it was like late on a Friday afternoon that, that she called to to tell me that the results from the biopsy were back and yes, it's cancer, it's colon cancer and it's stage four. And, um, then like the first two or three things that she said to me were, we caught this really late. It's like, yeah, no shit. Right. (laughs) And at this point you are past the point of, surgery being a viable treatment option. The only way surgery might be indicated is as a palliative measure. And I'm not going to tell you all of your treatment options, except I am going to tell you, you can refuse all treatment. I said, well, that's not what I choose. I have a nine-year-old daughter. I'd like to stick around. And so Jen had to sit with the news that the symptoms she had been experiencing for years were caused by cancer. 
and that the cancer had now spread to the point where a cure was no longer an option. But just what it's like, the otherworldly experience of those first few seconds, minutes, hours, days after receiving news like that, how um, just disassociated you feel like from your body, from the world, from people around you. It's like you're just instantly like catapulted into this whole other stratosphere and the normal laws of physics don't apply. Like (laughs) you just feel like everything that you took for granted isn't a fact anymore. Like you having a future (laughs) Mm. or, you know, it's just, it's a really really bizarre time. As if dealing with the shock and the dissociative feelings of an advanced cancer diagnosis weren't enough, Jen also had to quickly learn about the complicated disease. And then you have to, you know, become an expert in this, something that you never had necessarily had paid much attention to before. Um, And you have to do it very quickly before you have to make very critical decisions. And All that while dealing with the emotional trauma yourself and the emotional trauma of telling the people that you love most. Imagine that for a moment. Imagine that you have to tell the people that you love that your future has been drastically cut short, that your future with them has been cut short. Who do you think would be hardest for you to tell? For me, it would be my husband, Eric, my kids and my parents. For Jen, it was her parents and her daughter. Let's start with how she felt about telling her parents. Uh, It's weird. It's like I felt like I failed them or something. Mm, Why is that? I don't know. I guess like you brought me into this world and somehow I allowed this to get to this state and, and I know with how much trauma and and this is going to inflict on you and how hard this is going to be on every level emotionally logistically financially you know in so many ways and I just felt so sorry just like what an awful thing to to know you're going to put your parents through who had finally just retired and settled into what they thought was going to be their forever home and just on the verge of starting this nice new glowing chapter in their life Mm. and to basically feel like I'm coming through with a wrecking ball because we're really close and they wouldn't have stayed at an arm's distance if if I asked them to so it was never a question of like were they going to be involved or not or was this going to impact them much or not Mm -hmm. I just think about this idea of you saying that you were handing your parents a wrecking ball, even though none of this was your fault. Yeah, I and and I know that, and that's the last thing that they would want me to feel, right? And mm-hmm. but it's still, if you stand back and look at it objectively, it's like they would be living one life had this not happened, and now they're living a different life because it has. Mm-hmm. But. Now, you know, more than a year out, I'll say that this this whole process has actually, I think, made us all much closer as a family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm just so, so grateful to, to have them for this great support system and 
advocates and um and this kind of thing you know confronting <laughs> your mortality you spend more time on the conversations that matter and less time on the conversations that don't it's hard to say how i would feel in jen's situation but i think i would feel similarly i mean how can you not worry about the people you love most in the world when i first talked to jen i felt a connection with her Maybe it's because we both like audio. Maybe it's because we are a similar age. Maybe it's because we are both moms. But an obvious difference is that while I'm trying to figure out how to answer my son's questions about death in general, Jen is trying to figure out how to answer her daughter's questions about her own death. What was it like talking to your daughter about your diagnosis? It was incredibly daunting and challenging. I, we were fortunate that she happened to be out of town visiting her aunt. She was in Disneyland that weekend. <laughs> and so we had some time to digest the news ourselves. We had time to kind of <laughs> practice a little bit. I think we, we sort of talked through what we were going to say. I remember when I first sat her down, we talked about the fact that, I mean, obviously I hadn't been feeling well. I, I had been having all these horrible symptoms for a year and it had really impacted my ability to do a lot of normal activities and stuff with her and just, just how I felt on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, that really impacts how you parent and your relationship with your child. So as scary as it was to tell her, it was also in a way good to be able to have something like specific to hand to her and say, you know how I haven't been feeling well. Well, now we know why. And that's, that's the really good news because now that we know why, now we can do something about it and hopefully I can start to feel better. But the bad news is it's cancer and she was frightened and worried and cried but she handled it overall pretty well. And it, it's weird because like you tell a kid something like that and then they just will maybe a few minutes later just ask about something like unrelated that's totally normal for their nine-year-old reality. And then out of the blue later, maybe come up with a really tough question. A lot of times when she'd be like upset about something else, then it would kind of remind her, bleed over into to that topic. So I remember one night when she asked straight out, are you going to die? I said, nobody knows exactly what's going to happen. The doctors are doing everything that they can. They don't know enough about me specifically and about my cancer specifically to know exactly how this is going to go. But I will, as they get more information, give us more information, I'll try to give you more information and, and she asked very directly that we tell her everything, that we never like sugarcoat anything she wants to know. Wow. And so I've, we've, I've had to balance that, you know, wanting to respect her wishes with not wanting to traumatize my kid unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. Has she continued to ask that question about... How severe is it like as it's evolved and you've gone through treatment? Does she continue to ask that question? She does periodically ask me, are you going to get better? When are you going to get better? When will you be able to stop this kind of treatment or that kind of treatment? 
or look for looking for reassurance, you know, but like the cancer is shrinking. Right. And, and when I have like a good scan, we'll, we'll show her, look at this scan and look at this one and that's good progress. So yeah, she does periodically, but, but not all the time. Again, I mean, she's still very much inhabiting like her world and <laughs> her concerns. And last night I had some stern words with her about something and she was in her room and kind of texting, arguing with me a little bit, like in my room <laughs> down the hall. And then out of the blue, followed up one of her arguments to me with, please don't ever leave me, stay on this earth with me forever. And it, it's a tricky thing to kind of tease out and try to make sure that I'm really understanding where she's at with all of this without unnecessarily like ripping open the wound more often mm-hmm. than, I, than I need to. I mean, it sounds like you're doing an amazing job just thinking about where she's at with all this and trying to meet her and have her lead the way. I think that's all you can really do. And um, I think there's not probably one exactly right answer for, for everybody. You know, was I not actively pursuing treatment that it would all be very different, the conversations I was having with her. But she sees me going to the doctor, getting treatment, showing having some evidence of some improvement. So then at the same time, I don't want her to have at any point, like feel like she's been lied to or deceived. Um, So I've been really just careful with word choice to never make any like outright promises that that I can't make. So, you know, I'll say things like I'm doing everything I can and the doctors are doing everything they can and I'm fighting really hard. And, you know, and so in Jen's original plan, Year one was going to be about fighting really hard with aggressive treatment. Year two, which is this year, the second trimester of Jen's illness, was going to be about creating big, amazing memories with her family. It would be the year of her bucket list. I'll have a year to stop treatment, feel healthier and better, and go do all of these ambitious things on my bucket list. It would be the year that Jen would travel the world with her daughter, take her daughter on adventures. And, you know, huge part of that was wanting to generate as many happy memories with my daughter and her dad as as we could before I go. So I I was kind of thinking about it like that, like year one treatment, year two, lots of travel, lots of adventures, and then imagining that year three probably would be as my disease progressed and I would be succumbing to it, that then that would be the more kind of like hospice phase, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I now realize how just ridiculously like naive (laughs) it was to think that I could plot out my experience (laughs) around these factors that I thought I could control or have some control over. I realize now that it's just not that tidy. It's not that organized. Um, Once you get step onto the treadmill of treatment, it's very hard to say like where that's going to take you. I had no idea 
how my body was going to be responding to treatment, how that response would inform future treatment decisions or just my own feelings about wanting to pursue more treatment or how unbearable the side effects would be, all that kind of thing. And then beyond that, I didn't know what what kinds of external factors were going to come along and put a wrench in that plan in my thinking of, you know, these three years is sort of how I was going to live each of those years. I didn't know that, oh, well, come year two, the world is going to be on lockdown because of the global pandemic during year supposed travel, do the big fun bucket list stuff year. Like that will not be an option. And not only will it not be an option for a particular period of time, it will go on and on without any clear end in sight. Mm-hmm. So how can I ask how you cope with that, knowing that the bucket list that you had imagined, these things that you were going to do with your daughter and your husband, you have to actually rewrite what that bucket list is. And what is that like? Yes. You know, I think in the beginning, it was more like, okay, we'll have to tweak this a little bit or postpone that or slightly edit this goal to pretty much just like shredding the whole list. (laughs) You know, I think I've gone through kind of phases of, you know, frustration, anger, denial, just, just like anybody would, you know, when trying to handle really unwelcome news. But now I think I've thought about it more and I've realized that so many things I'm, I'm fortunate in that so many things on my bucket list were less about trying a totally new experience or going to a totally new place and more about really wanting to retrace some of my past adventures with my daughter and with my husband. I guess what that made me realize is that I can't regret that I didn't get to do those things. Like I got to do them. I just didn't get to do them again with my family when I had wanted to, but Hey, okay. I actually, I still have those memories. I mean, that's more than I think a lot of people can say already. So, so then I started feeling a lot of gratitude for how I lived my life before and just being grateful that, that I had done a lot of big, maybe impulsive, sometimes not the wisest <laughs> thing, but you know, I lived this big international life and um, I'm very grateful for that. So that's okay. I can make peace with some of those trips no longer being an option you can't live in a constant state of like hope and disappointment, hope and disappointment. So I feel like it's better to sort of make peace with what the reality looks like. And then if if things turn around, great. I'll try to be poised to take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. The harder things to take off the list were things that I thought we would be just doing locally right here in Sacramento, like taking my daughter to She loves Billie Eilish. I was going to take her to one of her shows. You know, I promised her some of these things. Whenever she remember, you know, brings those things up or whenever we're going to get to do those things and not being able to give her an answer, that's that's when it's really hard. Mm -hmm. Devastating, really. You know, it's... And the other day we were talking about ups and downs in life and how this is a hard time for all of us with, with having just relocated and not being able to go back to a traditional classroom and just been my cancer and just lots of challenges that we're dealing with right now. And, you know, but I was trying to 
kind of spin it and that, well, you know, everybody has ups and downs. And, and she said, what are our ups? And I I just lost it. I didn't even know how to answer. And I couldn't even tell her like, well, I promise you one of the things that is going to be on that list of the ups, like that's coming next week. Right. Like, I don't know. I don't know when I can promise, make promises or I can't promise her anything right now. And that is, that's infuriating. That is, that makes me angry. Because, and because it doesn't have to be this way. I guess some people would call it political, but I call it science, right? If there had been a more responsible re- response to this earlier on, we could be much farther past this point that we're at with the pandemic, or at least have some kind of end in sight. So that is, that's the really disquieting, frustrating, like on a daily basis thing. Mm-hmm. It's just not being able to see uh, an end to this and uh, not being able to promise her things that I know will give her joy that I really want to be able to do with her, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm so grateful for you telling your story because while it is true, I mean, everyone is affected in some way. I mean, I know for myself, I'm so fortunate because it's mainly some minor inconveniences or having to change plans. But for you, it's really important to hear that for you, it's changing plans that you may or may not be able to have. Yeah, it's really um, having to be willing to, to give up dreams and plans. And, and that sucks. Yeah, it really sucks. It's like, you supposedly in the Hollywood version of cancer that I had more exposure to before, um, probably than real life cancer. I, you know, you see people get a diagnosis or a grim prognosis and then they go out and live their best life and appreciate every second and, and take all kinds of risks and teach everyone how to appreciate life with their bravery in the face of death and, you know, all of this. But in this setting, it's so many things are just, are just impossible. So many options have been just taken away from me. Like things that I thought I could make a choice about, I can't make a choice about. Whether or not people believe COVID-19 is a real and present risk, which obviously we have ample evidence to, to prove to everybody that it is. But every time I see somebody or I pass somebody or I step into an elevator someone gets off of when they haven't been wearing a mask, it's a very scary moment every time that happens. And I, I don't know if they realize that by exercising their right to defy the science and believe whatever sources they have, that they're needlessly traumatizing people who are already dealing with a lot of trauma mm-hmm. and and difficulty. Um, and I don't know if they knew that, if it would change it. I'm sure if Jen took one of those stress scale tests, she would rack up a whole lot of points. Terminal illness, relocation, pandemic, people not wearing masks, fires, she has had to cope with more than anyone should ever have to go through. Kind of powerlessness kind of starts to seep in, like, 
how how am I supposed to infuse every day with the highest, the most quality I can when I can't even take it for granted that I can go like take a walk in the park. <laughs> like these last few days, the air quality was so bad from the fires. And so, um, you know, after when too many, when too many things like that happens, it's easy to just kind of want to throw up your hands and say like, why, why bother? Um, you know, plus we've been in the middle. Of so with all these stressors and very real death reminders, I wanted to know how she finds balance. Well, so one thing that I've been thinking a lot about lately uh, is just balance. Um, like and just as a heads up, the remaining questions are part of our second interview. Like how do we develop a relationship with our mortality, but also not let the thoughts about the fact that life is finite really interfere with just living? And so I wonder specifically for you, for someone who does have a life-limiting disease, how do you balance thinking about your mortality and thinking about death with just living day to day? Yes, um, I would say that I think how I thought it would be and how it actually is practically day to day after, you know, more than a year into my diagnosis and treatment is different. And that's because I'm still in active treatment. So I think that when you're in active treatment and you're dealing with side effects and you're always, you know, you're waiting for the next blood work, for the next scan, for the next appointment, the next surgery, sometimes it's easy to, to kind of lose sight of like the most important thing, the bigger picture the quality of your life and really living it with intent and not just living kind of like going reeling from one treatment to the next in kind of a constant just survival mode. All that like physical stuff really sucks you into the just like more immediacy of the day-to-day and that is not where if you would have asked me 10 years ago, like what would happen if you were given a prognosis of three years to live, I probably, I would have told you that I would be living each day very differently on this much more like present and evolved way. But in reality, like I don't feel good a lot. I have days when I'm more introspective or I'm putting thought into those kinds of questions or I'm writing or... I'm trying to really look at those questions and reflect on where I'm at and what I need to do to feel at peace with myself and my life and my legacy. And there's other times when it's just like, ugh, am I gonna make it home before I have to like get sick? And you know, when is my this weird pain gonna stop? And I think it takes a lot of uh, strength and a lot of it intention mm. to not get completely consumed by all of that and to try to like keep sight of the bigger quality of life questions and I have not figured it out yet exactly <laughs> so I spend a lot of time being kind of frustrated with myself or feeling like hey like TikTok it's you know every minute matters and 
I spent five hours yesterday watching some really stupid show because I felt like crap. There's five hours of what are now a finite amount of hours <laughs> that hypothetically I could tally up based on my prognosis. That doesn't feel good. Like that's not how I meant to spend it. You know, when you can suddenly like see the whole pie and then you see parts of it disappearing, that can also lead to some kind of like existential panic and dread. Um, so, and you also, what I've come to find is you, you really can't live under that kind of pressure all the time. <laughs> You can't. Right. That sounds like a lot of responsibility and pressure to put on yourself. Yeah. I've let go of some of those expectations, you know, that if I don't like make the absolute most of every hour that I, you know, I have to have all this fear of regret. Mm -hmm. Like it's okay. You got to be easy on yourself and that's not really going to accomplish anything at the end of the day. But at the same time, how can you, when you are dealing with all of that stuff, what are some strategies that, that you can use to make sure that you are finding ways to have the most quality in each day that you can? So I think just trying to, you know, take time to pause and, and reflect and like step outside of just the, the day-to-day kind of treadmill that is dealing with like all the treatment side of things and logistics and everything else and to to try to pause and step back and look at the bigger picture and and think okay how have I honored what I've decided is important to me today or how have I not and how can I do better tomorrow Mm -hmm. I really appreciate you sharing all that because I didn't really even think about how just the side effects and feeling sick and all the logistics that you have to deal with, how that really impacts your ability to sort of spend time thinking about the bigger questions or spend time um, in a way that you find most meaningful because you're so busy with feeling uncomfortable. And I just, I appreciate you telling me that because I didn't, that's not something that would have even occurred to me. Yeah. And you can't fully appreciate the extent to which like all these things are going to drain your energy, like not just physically, but emotionally and psychologically and pretty much in every way. And you just really, you can't fully prepare for that. And so I do think that, you know, until you're in this situation, I mean, I know for myself, I had a much more romanticized view of like what it would be like to live in this space with this kind of a prognosis. Mm-hmm. So have you had time to think about or do you let your mind go to this place of thinking about what a good death looks like for you? Absolutely. In a number of ways. So because I'm not religious, in a way, I'm almost envious of people that that have like a playbook they can follow (laughs) because their religion tells them pretty much what they should be doing or what to expect and how to prepare. So I've had to think about it very differently. Of course, I'm, I have some fear of dying, but I have much more fear of in my final moments being just really crushed by regret at anything that I could have had the power to do differently and didn't that would have made things better for the people I'm leaving behind or 
would have made me feel more at peace with like the life I lived. That's something I've thought about. So it's like sometimes I look backwards and think about what some stuff from my past that I might want to work through that can help me feel just more at peace with myself and my place in the universe. And then also look to the now, like what is or isn't within my control to do differently now Mm. that I think will make me feel more, again, like more just at peace. Um, And then looking ahead, like, what do I want the actual, you know, my physical environment to be like, or who's there? Mm -hmm. And so what kind of things in your environment are you thinking that you would want around since that's so important? As much nature as possible, probably. And and that doesn't mean like out in the wilderness, but being in a situation where I can easily be outside as much as I want, as much as I'm up, up for it. And then also um, indoors, just making sure the, <laughs> you know, like the lighting and the sounds and all the are just like as calming and therapeutic as possible. You know, originally I thought I wanted to donate my body to science mm-hmm. and I still may. Um, that's a way of that also goes into the whole, like, what's a good death, trying to leave something of value behind trying to be as useful for as long as possible you know for the purposes of helping other people I think that's something that would uh, that's something that I would feel really good about Mm -hmm. but it's hard like before my last surgery and I had to fill out all these forms and think about this and I couldn't quite pull the trigger to like submit the donation forms Mm -hmm. before the last surgery because I realized my actually my daughter had recently because of our move and like we'd had a cat that died and was buried and she said we can't move without the cat we had to like pretend that we dug up the cat and moved it and like oh wow <laughs> it was this whole thing and then it just it made me realize that we just moved the headstone you know and it, it made me realize that like it's no it's so important to her to have this place right? Where she can feel. And so by donating my body, I would be taking that away Mm. from like her. And and then once I started to express that, it kind of opened the floodgates. And then other people in my family started saying, yes, please. We've really been struggling with that. And of course, whatever you want to do, we support you. But it would be helpful to know where you're resting and to be able to visit you there. Oh my gosh. So yeah, it kind of changes things. And I'm also claustrophobic and hate being cold. And so the thought (laughs) of like being in a little refrigerator box for like four years where they take you out and because usually they hang on to you for a while. (laughs) That's kind of horror movie like imagery, uh, even though I don't believe that I would obviously be aware of any of that still there are times when that kind of like creeps into my consciousness it's like I don't I don't feel really (laughs) great about that so but I mean I think also more importantly it's just the thinking about how can my death help ease the experience at all for the people that I love most Mm -hmm. so it's like in this one very specific example those interests are kind of like at odds with each other like wanting to contribute this greater good to society as a whole versus wanting to really give like my immediate family what they most specifically need. Mm. Yeah, I would not even begin to know how to make that decision. What a hard decision. 
Yeah, it is. And it's, I don't know. I don't know. It's okay. I don't have to, I don't have to make it today, so I'm not going to. <laughs> What an important reminder that we don't always have to have the answers to our questions. That we can sit in a space of uncertainty and be okay. Jen, thank you so much for sharing the big questions you face, your vulnerabilities, and for sharing what it's like to have a terminal diagnosis during a pandemic. I wish so many things for you. I wish that you get to do at least one thing on your bucket list with your daughter. I wish that you come to a decision about your body that you feel good about. And when the end nears, I wish that you can be surrounded by greenery, can hear the birds singing, and feel the warmth of your family that you obviously love so much. I'm Alexandra, and this is Six Months or Less. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you all are taking good care.